Well, welcome everybody to uh, our first Indianapolis social media breakfast. Um, my name is Chuck Ghost. My partner in crime here is John Palmer. And uh, this is something that we've been wanting to do for, uh, for a long time. We uh, just finally got things started and got it going and took a little momentum. Um, uh, but again, we walk, we're appreciative of everybody coming out and, and hope it's a good event that we can then continue on um, several times this year. Uh, one of our focus here is going to be to um, try to have the event be free because we want to have that nice community feel. Um, but without partners like we have here today, that wouldn't be possible. So we want to uh, recognize our hosting sponsor and the food sponsor today. So. Obviously, you know who the hosting sponsor is, you're here. We're at the Indiana Humanities Council. So, Kristen, do you want to come up and, and just say a few things? Thank you, everyone, for sharing the early morning rain. I want to welcome you to the Meredith Nicholson Hall. Meredith Nicholson was a somewhat famous author in the early 1900s. And this is now where I get to come to work every day. I'm the communications director here at the Indiana Humanities Council. And we are a nonprofit grant making organization. We also put on our own programming. It's the little upcoming event. Chairs, if you take a look at that, we host um, First Friday events here at the house. We rotate artists in and out. And right now we have a beautiful work on the wall from Emma Overman, who's an artist expert person. So, uh, so please come join us for an Identity First Friday event if you're around. And then the second thing on there is the Pachakacha, which I don't want to say incorrectly, but if you aren't familiar with it, it's a really cool way to present ideas. And we're part of the Spirit in Place Festival. We're giving $10,000 to the winner of the best best creative idea to turn someplace in Indianapolis into an inspiring place. So check it out. Thanks for coming. There's a restroom around the corner if you need it. And enjoy. Great. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Once again, my name is John Palmer. Sorry, I'm setting up a Ustream so that we can, uh, anybody who wasn't able to make it or uh, hit the waiting list can uh, also join in on the fun with us. Um, but yeah, our, our other sponsor, in addition to the Indiana Humanities Council, thanks very much for hosting us. This is a great space. Uh, is also Panera Bread, who's provided the wonderful coffee and treats for you. So uh, let me introduce Christine. She'll just come up here and say a few words. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Chantel, and I'm the Regional Catering Sales Manager for Panera. Um, so I just dropped off some of our fresh bagels and fresh coffee. If you guys didn't know, we just opened downtown in Claypool Court. We have 26 locations around Indiana. So if you're not familiar with Panera, come in and see us. We'd love to have you in. And I'm also going to pass around just a quick sign up. I promise I don't e-blast or cold call or any of that fun stuff. But just um, if you're interested, I'm going to do a drawing for free lunch for five. If you work in an office setting and you'd like me to bring lunch to your office and um, you know just treat some of your friends, I'll take care of you that way. Or if you work from home or on the road or whatever, maybe I'll just give you some coupons for you and whoever else you want to pass them along to. Um, you know, and kind of schmooze some people that way. Um, so if you're interested, and if you do want to be contacted about our catering services, um, just circle your name, and I'll give you a call, or I can send you some of our information. So if you have an upcoming event, um, keep us in mind. And then these guys, um, how I actually met these guys, um, in our new cafe we were just discussing, our Gathering Guide Initiative. Um, so we're encouraging people to use Panera as um, kind of an office away from the office. So if you guys have any sort of you know gatherings or meetings, even if it's not work-related, um, we do a lot of Bible studies and, and clubs and things like that. It's a great place to meet, especially kind of on our down times. I was just in the cafe this morning. I think there was one other person in there. So it was quiet and peaceful, and we'd love to have you visit. So if you have a minute, fill this out, and we'll just pass it all the way to the back, and then I'll do a quick drawing before I get out of here and make sure that we get you guys pre lunch today. All right. Thanks. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Completely forgot to. Uh, <laughs> 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 
Um, so that now leads us to, to why we're here, and we're excited to have uh, Hannah Joseph here speaking with us. And, and what's kind of a funny story about it is we snagged her before we had a location or a time or a date or anything like that. And uh, um, what brought Hannah our attention was she wrote a very interesting uh, op-ed in the IBJ. Um, about, uh, I don't want to steal our thunder, but about Marsh and Facebook. I don't know if you guys remember that situation locally. Um, she had some great comments from her background. She is currently an attorney at Hollingsworth and Zivitz. Uh, background also uh, attorney at Finish Line. Um, and, and also interesting, she is a co-owner of King David Dogs um, downtown along with her husband. So she kind of shared with me that they have these uh, marketing discussions at home at night um, about what can and can't be done. Um, and she also has twins who are almost one year old, not quite. Um, so again, we're thrilled to have her uh, be a part of our first breakfast. I know that she's going to provide some tremendous insight um, and hopefully uh, is gain a few nuggets of information and then she's available for questions uh, afterward for your own campaign. So Hannah, the stage is yours. Great. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so just by way of helping me understand the audience a little bit, who has a personal Facebook page? Who has a Facebook page for their business? What about a Twitter account? Who has a personal Twitter account? Okay, and I assume Twitter accounts for your business as well? What about LinkedIn? Okay, what about another type of uh, social media platform like Wonder Reconnected or some of these other ones? We're, all, we're using lots of different tools, right? That's the, that's the bottom line. It seems like everybody at least knows the basics of using these types of tools. So what I'm going to talk about today is some of the legal risks associated with using these tools. The overarching theme that I want everyone to think about sort of as we go through this conversation is that advertising on social media platforms is no different than advertising in any other format. That's the lesson. That's going to be the takeaway. If you learn one thing today, that's what I want you to think about because it really doesn't matter what form the advertising, promotion, exposure takes. The federal government and, and professional plaintiffs out there and any other one, anyone else who's gonna try and enforce their rights against you or, or cause you to face exposure is gonna try and take the approach that it doesn't matter that it was put up on your Facebook page versus being handed out in a, in a paper coupon. It's the same. So we're going to talk about that, and that's sort of the overarching theme that I want everyone to think about as we're, as we're talking. Okay, so what types of legal issues could arise when using social media marketing? The number one thing that I think people need to consider is deceptive and misleading advertising. And there's all sorts of rules about how to make sure that your advertising does not confuse or mislead your customer. So we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about how that sort of relates to testimonials and endorsements. Testimonials and endorsements mean more than just what Wilford Brimley says that he likes Quaker Oats. You know, we all know that's a, that's an endorsement, that's a testimonial, but it, it's not always quite that clear cut when there's something that could be endorsed or, a sponsor, or sponsored by. And the FTC actually just came out with new rules about this at the beginning of October. They're going to start December 1st, so we're going to talk about that too because that's really breaking news as far as what the FTC's approach is to uh, using social media for testimonials, endorsements, paid, pay for play, basically. Um, there's always some IP concerns, especially when you have any sort of interaction you're using your social media tool. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit. We'll talk about rights of publicity, rights of privacy, what happens when you use someone's photograph or image 
um, or maybe use another business for comparison's sake to promote your own. There's always some risks there. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk briefly about terms of use and privacy policies. I don't want to get too bogged down in that. We could have a whole other conversation about it that would take longer than 40 minutes, I'll tell you that. And it's pretty boring stuff, but it's, it's one of those things that's kind of a necessary evil. So we'll talk about those terms of use and privacy statements and maybe some at least minimum requirements for when those are appropriate and what they should state. All right, so we talked about the Marsh coupon, right? That's, that's what led me here, and I think it's a great example of what can go wrong. Um, and Marsh is not the only, I don't want to call Marsh out and say that they're the only ones who, who have made a mistake, because there's been lots of missteps with marketing on Facebook. Um, Starbucks has had problems. There was the KFC coupon that was um, disseminated via Twitter from Oprah. That was a huge problem. I'm sure that you guys have heard some other horror stories. Um, the reason that people are, are having problems marketing on Facebook is because it's free and fast. When you have to do a coupon that you're going to hand out or put in a money mailer or send, send your, your customers even through an email blast that maybe you paid you know, for database management, you're going to check that coupon. You may run it through your legal department or have someone from one of your attorneys you know, take a look at it. You're going to proof it. You're going to make sure there's no typos in it, and you're going to make sure it has the sort of minimum disclaimers, and you're going to think it through. That's because you have to maybe pay for printing or pay for, email for an email blast. Those sort of um, safeguards make you think that coupon through a little more carefully, um, or that offer, that promotion. But because Facebook is so fast and it's free, people tend to throw things up on there and see what sticks. They don't think it through more carefully, think about what the worst case scenario might be. And that's, I think, what happened with Marsh. Now, I don't have any insight here. I don't know the Marsh attorney, but I don't think they're going to like me very much. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not, I'm not on the list of people to recruit. But um, basically what happened was back in, I think it was August, Marsh put uh, an offer up on their fan page. And let's just back up for a second. Marsh's fan page is really good. It's been really good. It's sharp, it's uh, dynamic, it is responsive to, to customers. They put up when there's fresh product in certain stores. It's really very interactive, um, and they've done a pretty good job of it. So then, in August, they thought they'd try a promotion to see, to maybe try and build its fan base. Um, and it's a good idea to do a promotion on your Facebook page, as we all know, because it gives your, your fans something back other than just following you and maybe look, getting some information about your company or your product, it, it gives them an enticement to maybe become a fan, to stay a fan, to check your page often. So it was smart to do a promotion. We're not criticizing them for that at all. But what they, what they said is um, they put a little offer up that said, at Marsh, we, wanna, we want our loyal fans, customers, and employees to be rewarded. You have all done a fantastic job at sharing our posts and telling your friends. Simply take advantage of this $10 Marsh coupon at your local Marsh or Amalia's location on your order of $10 or more, excluding tax. This coupon is limited to once per fan between now and August 8, 2009. Some exclusions apply. See coupon for further details. Don't be afraid to share. Don't be afraid to share. Marsh would love to see more shoppers become fans. Okay, so first problem. How many things in, this, in a Marsh store are under $10? Pretty much everything? The whole store? So for a store like that, for a store like Marsh, a $10 coupon is way too valuable. Everyone is going to print it and use it. 
it's going, and I think March didn't think through sort of what could be the worst case scenario, which is that everyone would print it and use it and probably come in and only spend $10. It's pretty easy to go in March and only spend $10. You can probably get three or four things and only spend $10. So from a margin perspective, it's a terrible coupon. It's not well thought out and it could really hurt their sales figures for that week because people who may not normally shop at March will come in and just basically take advantage and not spend one penny over $10. It's basically like a gift card in that, in that sense. So that is problem number one. They probably didn't think that through or pass it through legal for the reasons we said before. And that's maybe what legal would have said is, hey, this coupon's a little too valuable. Maybe it should be 10 off, you know, 10 off a purchase of 50 or more. Um, you wanna think about that from a margin perspective as it relates to your business or your client's business. So that's number one, sort of not necessarily a legal issue, but a market, sort of a marketing 101 issue. Okay, so the other next problem is that they put the limitation period until August 8th. Here's the problem. They didn't give themselves much of an out. Usually there's some sort of language in a coupon that says offerer reserves the right to modify or discontinue this promotion at any time. They didn't give themselves that kind of out. Um, so unfortunately, the coupon was maybe, maybe fortunately, was massively successful. Thousands and thousands of people tried to redeem it. And Marsh freaked out. They just weren't expecting that kind of redemption. And they didn't train their, their cashiers to uniformly accept or reject this coupon. So they were having all sorts of problems with consistency among their stores. And there's lots of Marshes with lots of cashiers. And so all of a sudden, Marsh freaks out and says, we're not accepting this coupon anymore. And so people are coming into the store, they have this coupon, they do their shopping, they present it, and then check out the cashier says, oh, no, sorry, we've changed our minds, we're not accepting it. Well, people look at the coupon and say, but you said you're taking it till August 8th. Well, this was maybe you know, late July, August 2nd, and they're not accepting the coupon. A coupon, just like any other offer, is a contract, it's an offer. You know, contracts, offer, acceptance, basic contract law, probably nothing you guys hear much about, but when, you're, when you go to law school, it's like one of the first things you hear. You make an offer, if someone, tries to, if someone tries to use that offer, that's an acceptance, a contract is formed. In this case, Marsh makes an offer, you try and redeem it, that's the acceptance, and because then Marsh has reneged, that's, that's a breach of contract, technically. Now, will people try and sue them for breach of contract? No. And what are the damages? $10. I mean, there's not, you know, there's not a lot of exposure in that sense, except there is exposure from a PR perspective. It was terrible for Marsh. They looked like they didn't know what the heck they were doing. And they looked like they were cheap. Their customers were furious and their Facebook fans were furious. They had been loyal followers. They had disseminated, they'd done exactly what Marsh asked. In fact, it says, don't be afraid to share. It didn't have any limitations about, will not accept facsimiles or duplications. It didn't require you to perhaps show that you're a fan on Facebook or present your fresh idea card. There are all these limits, like stop gaps and safety, safety measures that, that retailers tend to take to limit coupon over redemption, maybe a unique UPC. There's all sorts of ways you can do it. It tends to be more expensive to try and make those, those um, safeguards in place for coupon redemption. But in this case, Marsh said, share it freely. We want you to. And then people did and got punished. So again, total PR disaster. They had a mixed message. and. They didn't think through sort of what is the worst case scenario. So then, after a little bit of back and forth with their fans, 
The next thing, after that, after the issuance of the coupon, maybe two days later, it said expired. Coupon no longer being accepted, despite the fact that it said it would be accepted until August 8th. And then there was a little bit of uh, bad press. I think there was an article in the Indie Star, and there might have been even, an, there was a mention of it, I think, even on Wish TV, maybe on their website. Um, the next thing you know, Marsh puts up an apology. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think this made anybody feel much better. <laughs> it said, we at Marsh recently stuck our toe in the water to try this whole social media thing. Unfortunately, we ended up stubbing it. Our recent $10 coupon offer on Facebook has instead left us red in the face and many of our loyal customers angry, angry, rightfully so. For that, we're truly sorry. Needless to say, we're learning. Imperative to say we're sorry. Okay, so they're sorry. They probably <laughs> would have done better just accepting everyone's coupon and taking the hit. It, it, and that's one of the lessons that I would maybe you know, encourage you to do is that if you make a mistake, which lots of people do, again, if Marsh can screw this up, if Starbucks can screw this up, if KFC can screw this up, many smaller businesses can screw it up. Many smaller marketing professionals can screw it up. It happens. And the, one of the things I, I want to mention is that, backing up a little, the ground here for this type of law and these type of offers is shifting. It's new. It's evolving. Um, I don't think anybody fully knows what the rules are and what the rules are going to end up being. And so there is a risk when you do something innovative of stubbing your toe, fine. But an apology versus maybe accepting all the coupons, that's the weighing that your customers, your clients may have to make or your business yourselves. So, you know, if it were, if it were me and I was advising Marsh, I would have said, just accept all the coupons and be more careful next time when creating these coupons. But, you know, I'm not in their accounting department. I don't know what their potential exposure could have been. I don't know how many attempted redemptions there were. You know, it's easy for me to sit in my high horse and tell them what to do. I don't have all the information. But if I'm, but here I am telling you what to do. <laughs> and I would say, just, just take the hit if you make a mistake like this. And even better, sit down with your whole team before posting these offers so quickly and running with these very exciting, innovative promotions. Great, you have a great idea. You know a way to get your customers following you. You know a way to reward them. Sit down and think it through. Talk about what the worst case scenario is. Is the worst case scenario over redemption, under redemption? What if it's too popular, not popular enough? Those types of things. Talk about it with your team. Think it through the same way you would think through any other offer that you're gonna do. Doesn't matter that you're not sending it to a printer. Proof it, think it through. So that's, that's gonna be the message and I think that's sort of the, the lesson learned from this Marsh coupon. Okay, so what are coupon and offer requirements? Um, the, it, what needs to be stated is a clear and concise, understandable statement of the offer and all restrictions or limitations. Okay, fine, right? We all know that there should be fine print on coupons. We see them all the time. Um, the fine print is really, really standardized. But don't just lift it from a Gap coupon because it needs to describe how your coupon works. Yes, there's boilerplate, but it doesn't mean that it necessarily works from coupon to coupon. For example, when I was at Finish Line, one of the things that I always harped on is it, should there be one redemption per customer? Sometimes they didn't care. Sometimes, if someone wanted to come back again and again to use a 20% off a purchase of 60 or more, they didn't care because it just meant that there were more sales. They, they wanted there to be additional redemptions. So don't put language like that on there if you don't care about the number of redemptions. Um, don't put language on there that says it can't be duplicated if you want it to be duplicated. Um, it depends on the goal of the, of the offer. 
And this does, again, back, back to what I said before, doesn't matter whether it's on Facebook or it's a paper coupon or it's an email blast. It just doesn't matter. If it's a bounce back coupon that maybe you have a retail outlet and you're giving them away when someone makes a purchase. Those are all different types of offers, but they all still need to, they still need to have the same minimum disclosure requirements. Okay, so here are a few other rules. Disclaimers should be used to limit, explain, or qualify an accurate offer. Again, it, the fine print is, is, you can put the rules in the fine print, that's okay, but it can't be too fine. It can't be so tiny that you need a magnifying glass. It needs to be nearby the main statement of the offer. So if the offer is save 20% and there's a minimum purchase, maybe a minimum purchase of $100, you need to put that really close to the save 20% because you don't want people to feel deceived. There's a whole risk in deceptive and misleading advertising that's called bait and switch. We all know what that means, that you've been tricked. Bait and switch is a big problem with these types of offers because you get into the store, you stand in line to make a purchase, you get to the register, and then you find out your coupon's no good. I mean, we've all been there. It's really irritating. Well, it's actually illegal. Bait and switch advertising is a, a, a big problem for, for large retailers and really even small businesses because these types of claims can, can hurt you, from, again, from a PR perspective and from a legal perspective. Now, the more traditional idea of bait and switch is that there's some sort of pricing change. You know, you get someone in the store with a promotional price and you get to register and realize that promotional price may not be applicable. But it doesn't matter. It applies to any type of offer. So make sure your disclaimer is clear and conspicuous, that it's in close proximity to the claim being modified, save 20% off a purchase of $100 or more, and it can't con contradict a misleading claim. So it can't say, save 20% off your entire purchase, and then the fine print say, but entire purchase must be made of you know, full price product. You need to, it needs to be consistent, and it can't, the fine print can't contradict what the main message is. Those are sort of the basic rules of what disclaimers need to state. Okay, so here's some sample types of language that might need to be on a coupon. Void rate prohibited, taxed or restricted, cash value one, one one hundredth of a cent. The other alternative to this is no cash value. Either way, you want to make sure that there's not, the coupon itself doesn't have a specific cash value. This is an antiquated contract rule, but it needs to be on there. This is a big one. Coupon can't be used with any other discount, coupon, offer, prior purchase, exchange, or refund. Depends, right? If, if your offer can be used or combined, that's fine. But sometimes people, clients, businesses don't want them to be combined because you can use all these different offers together. All of a sudden, something that's $40 gets down to two because they maybe have an employee discount and they have, you know, uh, they bought it six weeks ago and they want to refund because they have a new coupon for it. Um, and you need to, and it sort of brings you back to another point, which again is one of the things that Marsh did wrong uniformity. There needs to be uniformity in your offers, how they're disseminated and how they're accepted. Um, make sure that you make a good, clear communication to the people that are going to be handling redemption of these offers. Make sure that there's uniformity, that there maybe isn't a place, if you're doing it all on e-com sites, make sure that there's a place for a coupon code to be entered. That's kind of a problem if you say it can only be redeemed online and all of a sudden the e-com portal doesn't have a place to redeem it. Um, so again, sort of try and think through all the different things that can go wrong with a coupon. And there isn't a huge universe of things that can go wrong. I mean, there's only a few things. Just make sure you're sort of checking those boxes off as you're, as you're planning the promotion. Again, limit one per person or one per transaction, one per family, whatever the limitation might be. Not to be reproduced. A big one for Marsh. 
they, they said that they shouldn't have been reproduced and then they, they had a mixed message. Valid until, that's a big one. So Marsh had this language here, but they didn't give themselves the out. The company reserves the right to modify or discontinue this offer anytime. That's an important out, as we all saw with Marsh. That's a very important out. Additional exclusions may apply. Good catch-all language. Always try and give yourself an out for things you didn't think about. That puts the customer on notice that they, there might be other issues here. Again, Marsh put that in there, but that's usually not quite enough to get you through, through any other major glaring problems with an offer. Okay, so here's an example, and I don't think you guys can see it very well, but here's an example of a good coupon offer, and I'm gonna go to Adidas's Facebook page because <coughs> they are doing a really good job of this. And I think someone here is maybe from Adidas. Is someone here from Adidas? Someone from Adidas signed up, but maybe they're not here. Um, okay, so one of the reasons I love this page is because it sort of resonates with me from my finish line experience. They're doing a great job here. This is um, a really interactive, interesting page just from a marketing perspective. Um, and I'll scroll up so you guys can see some of the other cool stuff they're doing. But they're putting a lot of different content on here. So here's you know some, some new product that's available. And then you know, scrolling down, they have some imagery from an event that they had with David Beckham and from a debut um, of the Jay Bond collection. This is, really, this is a really cool sort of interactive site. But what I really like here is this coupon that they've got. So what they've done really well here is that they've advertised the coupon in the post so that they've made you aware of it. Fall's begun, we have some awesome product, here's a gift in, for US customers. But they link to the coupon, which is so much better than what Marsh did. Because Marsh really put the, the vast majority of the coupon language in the post. And they just, again, it sort of prevented them from thinking that through and really f finalizing it and making it consistent with other coupons that they may offer in their stores. This is probably the identical coupon to what's being handed out in the stores or as a bag stuffer or as part of an email blast. It's that consistency idea. So you make a post about a coupon that you have, you have used maybe in other, in other media forms. And this coupon's perfect. Um, and I'll go back to the PowerPoint and just sort of go through what, I don't know. Let's see, going back to slideshow. Sorry, I'm not super great at getting back to the whole slideshow thing. Slide. Okay, so I know it's teeny print, and this is looks pretty small, but has the valid through dates, October 1st through October 14th, only valid at certain stores, one coupon per person per transaction, that, and maybe the way they enforce that is they take it. That's one of the, a good way to enforce a rule like that. Valid for one time only. Present this coupon to the cashier. Altered, duplicated, or re reproduced coupons will not be accepted. Obviously, they've probably been burned on this before. That's why that language is there. Offer can't be combined with any other offer or in-store promotion. Offer doesn't apply to previous purchases. Purchases at Adidas performance or outlet stores. Does this all sound familiar? It's the same stuff that, you know, and that's why I mean by saying coupon language tends to be boilerplate. Um, it talks about what else is excluded. Coupon has no cash value. Adidas reserves the right to change terms or conditions, substitute offer of equal or greater value, and offer at any time without notice, void or prohibited. It's got everything. Perfect coupon. Love it. Great, great job, Adidas. So, 
keep something like that, keep Adidas in mind. And, you know, it, it's a good idea to follow some of the big retailers and maybe big companies that are doing something similar to your business or your client's business as an example of how to do this right. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing it right. I mean, as I said, Starbucks, I think, has the most fans of any page on Facebook, and they've made mistakes. So I'm not saying just lift the language straight off of what they're doing, but it's a good way to sort of see what their legal departments are saying about it rather than maybe hiring an attorney yourself to tell you the same thing, or at least give you some good direction. Okay, so other sort of issues that might arise with deceptive and misleading advertising. Use of the word new. Can't use the word new forever, right? New and improved. Can't say that unless it really is. We see it all the time. Must be a legitimately new or reformulated, reformulated version of a product and can only be used for six months from when the newness began. So be careful with that, with the use of the word new. Use of the word free. Bait and switch issue. People do this all the time. You know, free gift with purchase, free beach ball with the purchase of a towel, and then all of a sudden the retailer raises the price of the towel to include the beach ball. Can't do it. Totally cheating. Um, don't you can't raise the price of the underlying product to account for the free gift. Um, if something's free, it should be temporary. Otherwise, it, it's not a promotion, and so you need to make sure that if there's something that isn't free all the time, um, and there should be, if there's limitations there, they need to be stated. So that happens all the time with these like sham wows, right? Buy one sham wow, get one free. Separate shipping and handling may apply. Ten ninety nine per shipping and handling. You just pay ten ninety nine to ship yourself a towel that's worth eighty two cents. This is a that's a scam. But they're they're fine. Who cares? They they're they're stating the shipping and handling. No problem. So those are the ways that you need to, if you're doing some sort of promotion like that, a, a buy one, get one free, a free gift with purchase, but you have some sort of restrictions or limitations, they need to be stated just like any other coupon or offer. And sort of backing up for a second, because of the sort of state of the economy that we're in and all the struggles that retailers and businesses are having, people are trying to get really innovative with their promotions. And that's great. But when you go out on a limb, you're alone. And you might be doing something that is a risk for your business. So be really cautious when doing something that's maybe a little bit outside the box. Um, there's nothing wrong with being creative and innovative with your promotions, but remember that sort of the more in the middle that you are, the more type of, you know, something that's been done before, the more likely that you're not going to be de deceptively or misleading your customer. Okay, so testimonials and endorsements. This happens all the time, and like I said, we all are familiar with the um, Wilfred Brimley's of the world and all the other, and the, for some reason it seems there's a lot of old people doing testimonials. I mean, Betty White does one, and um, those are sort of the traditional idea of testimonials. But there's also testimonials and endorsements happening on blogs and Facebook pages all the time. I mean, think about Daily Candy, right? That's an awesome blog, Urban Daddy. I love books, both of them. I read them both every single day. And they're constantly reviewing product, restaurants, um, cool websites. They're endorsing them. They're promoting them. They're reviewing them. The question is, are they getting paid to do it? The question is, are they getting free product to do it? There's also a lot of blogging going on that's sort of a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll write a blog post for your blog. You write one for my blog. We'll link to each other. We'll improve each other's SEO. Let's, it's, it's good for everyone. So the question is, again, is that an endorsement? Is that an in-kind exchange? 
these things are starting to become issues, especially for the FTC. So in a traditional setting, let's say that you have someone, you're promoting a testimonial, someone loves your product, um, you, you found out that they used it, um, and you want to promote it. So let's say that you hear that, you know, the governor, well, I'll tell you, the governor came and ate our hot dogs once, and we were super excited about that. We wanted to advertise that, but we didn't have his permission. We couldn't advertise that he was a King David Dogs fan. Um, another situation that happened recently um, is sort of this by, uh, again, this aggressive type of testimonial. I don't know if you guys saw that Indiana Live billboard looked like Obama, even with the ears, like, that were cut out. I mean, great idea, capitalizing on the whole, like, Obama hysteria, but one problem, they didn't have his permission. It was clearly not Obama. I highly doubt that he's been to the Indiana Live casino. <laughs> and it's, it's deceptive and misleading. And, I, and there's also a right of privacy issue, which I'm going to get to in a second. But you have to disclose these types of testimonials. You have to make sure that it's clear if it's a paid endorsement. And you can't use someone's likeness without their permission to promote your product. So again, the testimonials need to be disclosed. They need to be honest. If the results aren't typical, you know, like maybe Kirstie Alley and Jenny Craig, clearly those aren't the typical results, except maybe the fact that you gain it all back. That might be typical. <laughs> um, but, you know, she came up, she was endorsing Jenny Craig. Well, if you looked at the fine print on those ads, it all said that she was a paid spokeswoman. You need to, you need to make that clear. Um, you, again, disclose the connection between the endorsement and the company. If, if you're not paying for testimonials, then you don't have to make that kind of disclosure. Most importantly, get a release. Make sure it's clear that you can use that testimonial. This comes up all the time with small businesses. People want to say, oh, I hired your company to do my web design and I love it. Thank you so much and increased my traffic 10%. So maybe you had that conversation with your client privately and then all of a sudden you're like, well, so-and-so loved our business, let's put it up on our website. And we won't put their name, maybe we'll just put like Hannah H or Hannah J or something, not putting their whole name. Or maybe you make up a name. Well, that's not okay. You have to get permission to use someone's language, someone's picture, someone's name, any of it. Don't use people's testimonials without their permission and get a release that covers that so that there's no question that you, that you have the permission to use that content. Okay, so the new FTC rules. Earlier this summer, the FTC started talking about how they were going to be making changes to how they, um, can, how they enforce the rules with respect to social media. Bear in mind, the FTC hasn't said anything about testimonials and endorsements for 30 years. It, they, and on one hand, this is really cool because it means that the FTC and the federal government is finally realizing the impact of social media. They understand the amount of commerce and trade that's going on out there. And by writing new rules about this, it shows that they realize that this is something that needs to be regulated because there is so much. So that's good. That's good that they're up to speed maybe a couple years too late. I think, you know, as always, the federal government seems to be a little slow on the uptake. But in this case, they're, they're recognizing it. But here's the problem, as always. It's not clear how this is going to be enforced, right? Let's think back to Napster. The FTC, the FCC came after Napster and its users totally arbitrarily. They were going after 16-year-olds living in mom and dad's house and levying huge fines for downloading eight songs by Pearl Jam. I mean, this is, 
there's no way to really know how this is going to affect your affect your blog, your your Facebook page. But I can tell you what the rules are, and if you want to be a stickler for it, this is how you can be in compliance. If you want to run the risk, the risk is an eleven thousand dollar fine per violation. So that's a big that's a big number, and this is per violation, not per vendor, not per company. So if you do this over, if you if you violate these rules over and over again, you could be facing huge fines that could shut down your client or shut down your business. So they're affecting the, the rules affect pay for play, meaning back to this whole paid endorsement, paid testimonial thing. This comes up most commonly with blogs because what happens is vendors send blogs free product, and I mean I'm we're not we're not innocent. King David sent Guy Fieri a case of hot dogs this week because we want to be on Diner Stravin's dives, and I mean we want to be on it bad. <laughs> that show makes restaurants and we want him to come to Indianapolis and review our restaurant and we thought the best way to get him to do it would be to try our hot dogs so we send him to him for free and if he comes is that pay for play did he get free product to induce him to come to Indianapolis to review our restaurant under these new rules maybe um, it's a pretty tenuous connection and really what they're going after is more the type of situation where people are literally paying blogs to promote them. Um, but providing free product, these rules do cover in-kind payment. So if, you, if your company sends, if your blog reviews product that's been sent to you for free or services that are sent to you for free, you need to disclose that. For example, one thing that comes up sometimes is, hey, promote me as your accountant and I'll give you a break on your taxes. Great idea, except again, that's pay for play. Um, it also could affect, as I said, blogging quid pro quo, meaning I'll blog for you, you blog for me. Depending on the popularity of your blog and, and what type of service or business that might result in, that could also be covered by this, these new FTC rules. Um, th so what do you do? How do you, um, how do you make sure that, these, that, that you're making the right disclosures? Well, the best thing to do, and you'll see this on Daily, Can Daily Candy sometimes, is it says, sponsored by, you know, if they're doing a travel one, it'll say sponsored by American Airlines in a little box that says what the promotion's been sponsored. Um, another alternative would be to actually put a disclaimer at the bottom of the page that the following is a paid endorsement or, you know, blogger has received donation of product in exchange for this review. Some sort of language like that will be the safest bet. Another alternative is to maybe bury it in some terms of use. Again, because these rules are so new, they haven't even been enforced yet. I mean, they start December 1st. There's a question about what, what disclosure will be enough. So the best thing to do is to make it really clear. But any disclosure is better than none. Um, the other thing these new rules cover is um, when people pay for studies or research, um, research reviews, um, surveys, you need to disclose that too. So, you know, that, that survey of 10 dentists, you know, six of which recommend Crest, well, if that's been sponsored by Crest, then that needs to be disclosed. And these types of research studies are happening all the time, both on a large and a very small scale. Um, you know, we did a survey of 100 Indianapolis business owners and nine out of 10 like King David hot dogs. Well, you know, if I hired, you know, four, four C results to do that survey, and maybe skewed the, skewed the questions so that they would say they like King David Dogs, that's something that needs to be disclosed. Um, again, same, same penalties. So we're talking about big, big dollars here. Again, as I said before, no clue how the FTC is going to enforce this. 
it is so vast out there. There are so many people doing this that, you know, the, maybe the risk is pretty small for your blog or your, your client's blog or website to get caught, but um, you don't want to be the one who gets made, made an example of. And it's like Russian roulette. I mean, who knows? Who knows if you're going to get caught? It seems so random. Okay, so we all know what user-generated content is, sort of moving, transitioning into sort of another area. This is more of the next sort of section that I want to talk about is what happens when you interact with your blog, your web page. Facebook allows you to post comments. That's user-generated content. Maybe you let people review your product on your website. Maybe you let you have a blog on your website and you want you want comments. Most people do. It means that there's interaction. It's really, you know, quite uh, reaffirming when someone's posted a comment after a blog post. It means someone read it. Um, but the question is, who owns that stuff? Someone else's content, right? Usually that content is owned by the person who produces it. Basic copyright law is that anything that you create, that, that copyright inures to you, um, unless otherwise stated. There's another you know, issue about rights of privacy and publicity, right? Using someone else's picture, their name. So all those things can be covered in your terms of use. Um, but you need to be aware of it if you're using that content. Again, like if you someone puts on your Facebook page, King David puts on our Facebook page, King David is the greatest catering gig ever. They did an awesome job at our office lunch. No offense to Pam, we love we love you too. Um, and we want to put that in our brochure. Do we have the right to do it just because they put it on our Facebook page? Not unless not unless they grant us that right. So the best thing to do is to get a license or release. Now, generally speaking, you're not going to go after every single one of your Facebook fans and send them a release that says, hey, release me from using, I want to use this content. Send me your release, sign it, we'll keep it in a file. Sure, yeah, I'm sure we all have time to do something like that. But if the content you want to use is protected by publicity rights or the, by other IP rights, the best thing to do is to get some sort of release, like release language somewhere. Um, and this is really an interesting shifting area of the law. I just saw something um, last week. I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's this, there's this new company that you're going to get paid if you're cited on Facebook or any social media wearing a product of a certain company like Nike. If you get spotted wearing Nike gear, you can sign up and get paid for every time that your photograph appears on the internet wearing that trademark. So there's all sorts of weird questions I have about that, and I'd love to talk to their lawyer to see how they're dealing with it. But again, a great example of someone doing something really creative, how are they getting the rights to use that? What is their terms of use state? How are they gonna pay these people? What if there's other, what if there's other people in the picture? What if they're standing in front of you know, um, the Flatiron Building and that's too recognizable and that's an, you know, a protected piece of intellectual property? Lots of competing interests here. And I don't want to bore you to death about sort of all these intellectual property issues. It's a whole other conversation. Um, and I know I don't want to bore Keenan especially because he's an IP lawyer. And I, I mostly I just don't want to get it wrong in front of him. <laughs> but um, there, are, there are these competing rights and competing issues that you need to be aware of when, when interacting on these social media tools. So right of publicity is an individual's right to control the commercial use of his or her identity. Obama's image on the sign. That is a violation of his right of publicity. You, even if it's by implication, you cannot use a celebrity's name without the permission to sell a product. Period. End of story. 
right of privacy is an individual's right to control the dissemination of information that could cause harm to their feelings, reputation, et cetera. This comes up when you're maybe making a comparison to a competitor. Now, there's no problem in making an honest comparison, but you can't defame one of your competitors to improve your own business. You can't say, oh, I hear that they overcharge. I hear that they, that this other competitor um, doesn't deliver on time. I hear that their stuff falls apart. You need to hire us, you need to use us. That's a violation of right of privacy. So again, sort of an issue with deceptive and misleading advertising. Not so much with user-generated content, but another issue that sort of is, is related. Finally, use of stock photography. People do this all the time, and that's fine. It's a great way to make sure that you have the rights to use of the image. Just make sure that when you're buying it, the release is appropriate. People out there are selling stock photography that they may not have the rights to sell. Um, just like anything else, it's buyer beware. Um, so don't use photographs, the recognizable trademarks, buildings, or anything else that would require licensing. Confirm the releases. Make sure when, you, when you're buying it, make sure, hey, do you have the releases to use this? You can even ask to see them. Um, and make sure the releases cover the intended use. Maybe you want to use it in a brochure and it's only licensed for web or vice versa. That the release isn't just a universal release. Okay, so we're getting close to the end. Um, terms of use. Terms of use are uh, a very important document in most websites. I was just talking this morning about when terms of use is appropriate, and I tend to say always, and I'm sorry about that, because I know that nobody wants to hear it. Um, and I, I can say that I'm guilty of not getting it on King David right. Um, we have a privacy statement, and my husband, I had to fight him tooth and nail to get that up, because he's like, why do we need, we are a hot dog restaurant. Why the hell do we need a privacy statement? Who's gonna sue us on privacy? Well, probably not, but it's still something that's a good, easy, easy fix. It's inexpensive to put a privacy policy up. It covers your, it basically covers your butt. That's it. And it's a good thing to do. So terms of use and privacy statements are important, especially if you're interacting through your website. Now, if you've just got a marketing site where you're collecting no information, you're not having any interaction with your users, and you're not putting up any sort of unique content, it's literally just... King David Dogs is located at 15 North Penn. Come eat lunch here. Probably not, you don't need any terms of use. But if it's got any other sort of interactive content or you're collecting information on that site to maybe use for marketing purposes, a terms of use is a good idea. And the biggest reason is that it can, you can put that language in there that gives you the rights to use that user-generated content. As I said, if you want to use someone's picture, if you want to use someone's uh, testimonial, you can get that, that, those rights by stating it in the terms of use that by interacting with this site, you grant us the rights to use this information, however we want. Um, and I, I can tell you that Adidas also did this well. I looked at their terms of use page, and there's this great language about user-generated content. Finish Line does this well. Big companies all understand that, they, it, that the benefit to interacting is that the customer feels like they're part of the brand, but you get the stuff. The company gets the access to the information, which is way more dynamic than anything the marketing department can come up with. So that's why you want the rights. And you want to be able to have the rights for anything. So here are some of the other issues that need to be addressed by terms of use, and then I'll give you some sort of sample good user-generated content language. You want to have a trademark and copyright notice that protects your intellectual property. You want to talk about what's prohibited, spam, defamation, putting up 
perhaps putting up content that belongs to someone else, using someone else's picture, um, obscene, obscenity, um, perhaps something that's uh, cursing, anything like that. Maybe you, you don't want people to be interacting if they're under a certain age. Um, you want to disclaim the warranties and limitation of liability. That's typical of legal boilerplate that says, hey, you're using this at your own risk. We make no promises that it's going to work, that it's going to be available, blah, blah, blah. You want to disclaim third-party content. I'm sh we all have links on our website. And what happens if that link links to a site that maybe is inappropriate for minors? Or all of a sudden, they're not maintaining it appropriately, or they have it infringing content, or whatever. You want to make sure you're on the hook for those links. Um, indemnification, just a boring legal principle that says, hey, if I get sued by a third party, you're going you're gonna to indemnify me for, uh, you know, let's say that I get sued by someone for invasion of right of privacy. You submitted that content. You're on the hook for it, not me. Um, what's the security of the site? How you want to make sure that it, it terminates people's use. If you don't like these rules, don't use this site, period. Done. That's your, that's your termination rights. Um, Again, links, same idea as the third-party content. There should be a copyright protection notice. This is one of the reasons that it's very important on sites that have um, user-generated content. If someone finds out that their content is uh, in violation of copyright laws, the Digital Copyright Millennium Act provides for um, how copyright claims should be made. And you need to register a copyright agent with the Copyright Office, the USPTO. And then there's all the standard legal boilerplate that needs to be on there, like choice of law and stuff like that. So here's the sample language user-generated content. And um, basically what it says is that company may, in its sole discretion, post content that has been submitted to the company by the user, um, including maybe reviews or comments, blah, blah, blah. You may not use a false email address. You may not impersonate anyone. You may not otherwise mislead the origin of the user content. In other words, you own it, you have the right to put it up. And you give us a non-exclusive, royalty-free, perpetual, forever, irrevocable, and fully sub-licensable right to use and modify and publish and, blah, and create derivative works, which is an important one, um, any of the user content in any media. So we get to use it however we want, whenever we want, for as, for as long as we want. Um, you also get the right to use the name, and that we and the user represents that they own or otherwise control all the rights to the content, that it's accurate, that it doesn't violate the agreement or cause injury to any other person, and that you'll be indemnified for it. And that the user has the right but not the obligation to monitor and edit or remove any content. So that's an important one, right? Because some companies want to take down anything that's offensive to the brand. Some companies don't want any bad comments up there. And some companies say, hey, it's free discourse. Any, you know, any, any publicity is better than nothing. So if we get a good conversation going about why, you know, these are the ugliest shoes ever, fine. And some people, but some companies say, I, I'm going to monitor this. And one of, this, one of the reasons this comes up is because a lot of times employees will make comments on your Facebook page. Then what, right? What if someone says, oh my gosh, they're discriminating against all women. That's, that's a risk for the company to be putting that type of language up on the website or on, the, on a blog or on a Facebook page. So again, you want the obligation to probably take this, you want the right to take this kind of content down if necessary. Finally, privacy policies. Privacy policies are not required by law. It's a uh, sort of a uh, fallacy. It's more of a marketing, it's more of a marketing tool to let your customers know that how you're taking their personal information, how you're taking care of it, how you're collecting it, how you're taking care of it. Um, if you're, the most important rule of privacy policies is to do what you say you're doing. That's it. 
rule. That's the rule. Whatever you say you're doing, do it. If you don't do what you say you're doing, then, then you've got a problem. But the most important time that people need to put privacy policies up when they don't have them is when they're collecting information on their marketing site. Um, for newsletters, email blasts, that kind of thing, it says, hey, you know, click here to put your content on, you know, to add your name to our database. And you want to make you use care when maintaining your customer personal information. Don't sell it, don't share it, keep it secure. Use the same, use the same level of care that you would to protect your own personal information. Um, and these are the types of things privacy policies should say. How information is protected, how it should be stored, how it's tracked. Is it, are there links to other sites and what are the privacy rules of those sites? How are changes made to the privacy statement? How are those communicated? And contact information for how to take your, get your name off the list. Um, that's important. You need to state how you can get off the list. I mean, I, gosh, I need to get off the call. <laughs> but um, those are sort of the, the basic rules for privacy statements. So that's sort of the quick and dirty of some of the good and bad that you can do with some of this online social, so social media marketing. Um, I'm certainly open for whatever questions. I wish you guys would have asked a few more as I went along, but I was talking really fast. <laughs> so, yeah. That's a good question and it's sort of a double-edged sword because if you state all the different types of media, the problem is that you can't imagine everything that's going to that's gonna come up and there's new tools all the time. So if you don't state Twitter and you use Twitter all of a sudden or there's a new tool that comes out, which we all know what there will be, um, you don't want really to have to continuously update that form to you know give you a laundry list. And when you give a laundry list, you sort of run the risk that if you miss something, someone's going to come back and say, well, you made a laundry list of everything else, so why didn't you include this? The, sit, the way to, sit, to protect yourself is to do something like all web-related uses, including but not limited to, and enumerate the ones that you're using most commonly, and then say something to the effect of, you know, company reserves the right to use this in other forms of media um, without notice or something like that. Give yourself a little bit of an out. So the, the short answer is that probably needs to be revised, but it needs to, it shouldn't be, you know, all, it, it should be revised to include sort of some, some stop gaps, some safety valves. So, anyways, yeah? Can you talk about referral releases? What about LinkedIn when somebody refers you? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I can tell you that there's an ongoing issue right now for attorneys with LinkedIn because referrals, are prohibited, um, recommendations are basically prohibited for attorneys by the um, rules of professional conduct um, in, in some jurisdictions, if not all. Um, and so, and with LinkedIn, you can't, turn that, you can't turn that feature off. If someone recommends you, it shows up. And if you ask for recommendations and then try and get clients on the basis of those recommendations, you're almost certainly in violation of the rules. Um, so that is one area that I can tell you for, for attorneys, it's going to be an issue and some jurisdictions have talked about it and some have not. As far as doing sort of a shared recommendation thing, hey, if you recommend me, I'll recommend you, 
I think that that's probably less of a risk than saying, hey, if you blog for me, I'll blog for you. But it's not clear, and I'll tell you that I, I made a post about this for Kyle Lacey's blog, and that was one of the first things that someone said in their comments is, what if I just like your blog, and I recommend it, and you appreciate it, and you come check out my blog, and you like my blog, so you recommend it. Or, you know, just because you recommended one another doesn't mean you don't believe what you're saying. It doesn't mean it's just because you've asked for it or you've done some sort of shared recommendation. It's, you still might agree with it, believe it, and fully endorse them. Um, so these are the things the FTC is going to have to figure out. Um, but I would say that probably something like that is going to be lower on their list of what, what is a hot button issue. We, we just put up our Facebook page. Uh, now, they're going to have a terms of use. Facebook uh, has a terms of use. So you can put a terms of use. I, I, haven't, I haven't delved into that. So you can put a, your own terms of use in there also. You can't. You can't. Mm -mm. So, you, so that would be. You, you, so we went through this with Finish Line. And right. there's, there's um, what you can do. And I think on Facebook, there's like an info. There's like an info tab, and I think you can maybe put some disclaimers in your info tab. Um, it will at least get you part of the way there. You mentioned Adidas. Yeah, Adi right. But oh no, Adidas. I meant their website. I meant their their website has a really good terms of use. Um, the Facebook terms of use are going to trump all, and the Facebook terms of use are great, by the way. I mean, they are. They think of everything. They have LinkedIn terms of use are also really really excellent. I use them as a basis for terms of use that I drafted for a client because they were just so good. Um, and the Facebook terms of use, but the problem with Facebook terms of use is that they grant all the rights to Facebook, not to you. So anything that, you're, that your clients are posting on their Facebook, on Facebook's page, they, Facebook owns the rights before you do. Now, if you put something in your info and you say you own the rights and you get in a fight with Facebook, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. And Facebook is trying to monetize this, right? That's the whole problem with Facebook is that they're not able to monetize their users and they're trying to come up with all these creative ways to do so um, because they're not making it on the advertising dollars alone. And so that's why one of the things that, I don't know if you guys all saw this on Facebook recently, but like you had to go into your settings and turn off the feature that allowed Facebook to use your photographs in their own advertising. They're coming up with all sorts of crazy ways to monetize the use of Facebook. And we just have to stay sort of conscious about, conscious about it because Facebook's always gonna win against your business's fan page. It's a benefit to you to be able to put a fan page up, not a right, and Facebook is gonna, you know, gonna try and monetize it before you can. That was a good question, though. Yeah. So, Facebook doing that, so that's a, another good question: is how do you capture your users' information, right? Your fans, and we went through that at Finish Line too, because we want to market directly to our fans. How do we market to our fans? So the only way right now that you can market, Facebook is not going to release the email addresses to, of your fans to you. The only way you can get it is through subpoena if there's a legal issue. Um, at least that's the only way I know of. And even then, it's not easy. But um, one thing you can do is do your email blasts directly through Facebook. And that's one way, but it's a different database than, than your, um, your you know, regular email marketing database. And the only way that, and, and then there's like a whole question of how do they, how can people opt out? You probably in your email blast need to say something to the effect of, to no longer receive communications from, you know, finish line. Please remove yourself as a fan as on Facebook. But you don't get those email addresses um, just by by people adding themselves as fans, and that's just a because Facebook doesn't want to be on the hook for that. 
Um, and they, that's who would be. So, yeah. So then back to that, then I can think of several different ways, in your opinion, then what's the best way? Somebody posts something really great on Facebook and you want to use it for marketing purposes. What would be the best way to go around that? And um, it's a good question. Probably the best way would be to contact them directly and get, get, get permission. And these types of permissions don't have to be so, so formal. As I said, the best thing to do is to have this, like, you know, executed release. But you get people get permission all the time in less formal ways, and any permission is better than none. So if you email them and you confirm it's them and you tell them what you want to use and they and you, you know, maybe put a little boilerplate in there that I'm 18 and I can agree to this, you know, they then send you, and by, by sending back an email saying yes, you've confirmed your consent. I mean, the idea is to all show no, notice and consent. So if there's something that's really awesome that you want to use, you know, in, on a broad scale, that would probably be the best way to do it. But I think you're still going to have a slight issue with Facebook because they still own that content. Um, so maybe what I'm thinking is, could, would you mind making that comment again and send it to me? Again? Yeah, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. That'd be a good. That'd be a good way. Would you mind making it again? And I, I intend to use it in the following ways. And you know, thank you for doing it. And here's your. Here's your. And you agree that you're these things. You're 18 and. You, have, you own this content, and this is you. So that's, yeah. But I think that that would be a good way of going about it. That's, a, that's innovative. Good one. Any other questions? Well, you know, I, I think that, that everybody should continue. I don't want to scare anyone off from using these tools. I, I gave this talk to a group of small business owners that weren't using them yet, and everyone sort of walked out, like, panic-stricken. <laughs> well, there's so many rules, and I don't know how to do it. I mean. The, the truth is that everybody's using these tools. There's lots of innovative ways to do it, and we should all continue to push the envelope, just sort of with the risks in mind. So, you know, I, I, I think that they're great tools, they, they're important tools, and there's going to be more of them. So, you know, keep using them, keep trying to be creative about how to do it, you know, in a legally compliant way, and, you know, talk to an attorney or talk to a legal department or talk to you know, the other companies and ask them how they're doing it. It's, uh, you know, work together. Make sure that you're, you're doing things sort of in the middle. The key is to be in the middle of the road. Try not to be too far to the right or the left. And remember that, it, again, it doesn't matter what form it takes. It, it, people just don't care. It's all the same. The rules apply. So anyway, thanks. <laughs>